said, um, are you doing okay there? Okay, good. He also said um, elsewhere, not one jot or tittle will fall from the law, but that's not the entire body of scripture. That's the five books of Moses and, you know, whatever. But not one jot or tittle will uh, drop from the law until all is fulfilled. And that means, and I, I've showed you this before, but it's been a while, so I'll show you really quickly what a jot and a tittle means, is you've got different letters in the Hebrew. This is a dalet, okay? A little longer there. Anyway, Dalit looks like that, and then Resh looks like this. But when you're writing, they look almost the same. I mean, people write very quickly. This would be a tittle right here. That's just one little thing will change the meaning of the word. And you're actually going to, when you're reading the Bible, you'll see <laughs> names like a Reuel, and then it'll say, or D-U-L. They don't know if it's a D or an R in the original because maybe in Chronicles it says one, and in uh, Genesis it says the other. Anyway, you've got a D and an R. You've got a Bait, which looks like this. Right, and then you've got a calf which looks like this, and so when you're reading it, I mean, they look very similar. When you look at them, and you, somebody's writing with their their loose hand, it's very, very close. That little thing there, that would be a, a tittle. Kutso shell yud is what it says in Hebrew. So the yud kutso, this is the the tittle. A yud is just the smallest of the Hebrew letters. It looks like this. It's just a little thing about that big, thing. like you would have a, a yud right here. So it's a small little letter. So he says. A kutso shall you, or a jot or a tittle, will not drop from the law until all is fulfilled. In other words, every little mark which signifies what a letter is stands until all is fulfilled. Now, of course, people will use that verse and they'll say, we're still under the law of Moses. We're under the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And they cite Jesus. Well, the problem with that is, is that, one, he's speaking to Israel under the law in anticipation of doing what? Fulfilling, Fulfilling the law. So he says, until all is fulfilled. Well, guess what? That's what he did. He fulfilled it. And so we're not under the law. And what he said applies to every person in the world. You're either under the law and you have to fulfill that law perfectly, right down to the jot and tittle, or you are in Christ and the law is fulfilled for you. And people can't seem to get that right. I got several emails or posts within the past couple of days of people arguing that you still have to observe the commandments of Moses. Well, pick and choose which ones you want because... 30% of them today cannot be fulfilled. I mean, literally, you can't go down to Jerusalem and sacrifice at the temple. There is no temple, right? They got all kinds of laws that cannot be fulfilled. So you pick and choose your way to heaven, and you're not going to make it, or you can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and all is fulfilled in him, right? To say otherwise, to say that I am uh, going to do the uh, works of the law in order to be pleasing to God is what? It's saying that what Christ did, I'm sorry you didn't do a good enough job, and I'll pick it up from here. It's insufficient, okay? It's a slap in God's face. So remember that. I mean, just remember that, um, read it again. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. And not just the words, but even the letters within the words, which signify what word we're speaking about. And then we deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. In other words, the Bible is a united whole. You can't take a part out and say that this is the Word of God. You can say that's the Word of God, but it's not the entire, it doesn't comprise all of the Word of God. And you can't say that the whole, uh, and let me read that again, it can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts. Every part, every book, there's 66 canons in Scripture, every one of them is necessary to understand the whole counsel of God and of some parts but not the whole okay so you have you can't say that i have this part and this part is the word of god but not the whole and this goes down perfectly 
to context. What they just said there, I'm gonna read it one more time. I'm gonna give you my thoughts on this. We denied that the inspiration of scripture can be rightly, can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts or of some parts, but not the whole, okay? Because there are all kinds of things in the New Testament that people don't want to hold to, okay? They just don't. They don't wanna to hold to something that Paul says. He's a male chauvinist and I, I disagree with that. Well, guess what? You're picking and choosing what part of scripture applies and what part of scripture doesn't. But some things that Paul says seem to contradict with things which are in the book of Acts, right? We've got certain things that happen in the book of Acts, which Paul says we're not to do in the church age. Well, what is the answer to that? It's something called context. What is the context? What is the book of Acts written for? Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Does it describe something or does it merely pre or does it prescribe something or does it merely describe something? And who is being spoken to? Because there are all kinds of things in the book of Acts which aren't even being spoken to the Gentiles. It's Peter speaking to the Jews. You crucified Christ and you have to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That doesn't apply to us. We didn't crucify Christ to a tree, right? We're after the fact, okay? But they had and they needed to repent of that act. There's no such thing as us repenting of something that we don't know about, right? When you come to Christ, you may be a person. You may be a person that has heard the message of Christ and you've said, I don't accept that, right? Everybody got that? And so you've basically crucified Christ because you have rejected the only thing that Christ, uh, uh, that can save you is Christ, okay? So later you find out, I was wrong. This Jesus is the real thing. Then you have repented of your disbelief in Christ. But if you're somebody that's never heard in Jesus, you can't repent of that. You've never heard of him. Somebody comes and says, can I tell you about the guy that died for your sins? Yes. And you hear it? There's no repenting. There's only receiving or rejecting and then repenting of it later. So you see that? So everything has to be taken in context. You can't take the parts without the whole and you can't say this is the whole without the parts. Everything is united in the word of God. So once again, they did a good job on that. And um, everything, keep it in context. Context, context, context are the three main lessons that we need to remember in the Bible. And then of course you have, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? But the first thing you need to do is keep things in context. As long as you do that, life will go much better for you. And you know, when somebody says, well, I disagree with you about that. And I get this a lot, you know, people just disagree and that's fine, but they expect you to change your mind because they give you an argument against what you're saying or they send you a sermon or a, a commentary which doesn't agree with what I agree with. Am I supposed to change my convictions because they sent something that they went and found somebody, they picked somebody that they agree with in order to take their stand? I don't care if they get 50 people and they have 50 people that say that this is allowable within the church or this is doctrine, right? If it's wrong, it's wrong. That's what Paul says about itching ears and people that, um, uh, we just did that in Timothy a couple days ago, or maybe I typed it a couple days ago. Let me go there quickly and then we'll get into Romans, but it's on my mind, just, just uh, what they said here is very insightful. I like this Chicago statement of faith and I'm enjoying it. So he says, um, uh, reproach, he says, now the spirit um, I instruct you brethren, uh, reject fables and he says, faithful saying, um, sober-minded. Anyway, it's right here in, in uh, uh, 1 Timothy, or two, yeah, 1 Timothy, uh, just, no, we're in 2 Timothy, so it's got to be, um, uh, yeah, there it is right there, 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, you've got 50 people that are saying that this is true. Well, I don't care if a thousand people say it. It doesn't mean that it's true. It just means that that's what they're teaching. Now you have a decision. Is this correct or is this correct? What is the context? Because if this person is taking something out of context, then he's formed what is called a pretext. A verse out of context is a pretext. It's a lie. So it doesn't matter what the masses think. What matters is what the Word of God says in context. Anyway, there you go. I love the Chicago Statement of Faith. We'll do that again real soon. But for right now, we've got to get back into uh, the book of Romans. And that's chapter 11. Let me turn there really quickly. I just had it open to it. Romans 11, verse 7 says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What did Israel seek? The right relationship with God, being, you know, in favor with him. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Okay, here, let me give you my comments on this. The previous verses, let me go back and just read you some. Um, no, that's fine. I'd have to start from verse 1. Verse 7 is a new, uh, what's that? We're in verse 7, 11, 7. But that's the beginning of a new thought, so we're just going to go with it. Um, uh, where was that? Um, the previous verses were speaking of grace being grace unmerited favor apart from works okay everybody understand that grace you cannot work for grace these people that email you and they say you know you need to be observing uh, the feasts of the Lord to be pleasing to God right that's not grace that has nothing to do with grace grace is saying here I'm giving you salvation and it's apart from works if you have to go back to the Old Testament and pull out things from the law in order to be pleasing then you're earning God's favor, you're not obtaining grace. So grace is grace. Uh, let's see here, Unmade, unmerited favor apart from works. This is the state of the remnant Jews who are a part of God's election. Based on this, Paul now asks, what then? What is the result for the rest of the Jews who are not a part of this process of election? Remember, when he's speaking about elect here, he's speaking about people that are in Christ. And it's not just Gentiles that he's speaking of. He's speaking of Jew and Gentile, anybody that is in Christ. But the rest of the Jews that are not elect, what about them? Think of the Jews today. You go to the Western Wall and they're wearing all these clothes that, you know, the, the Talmud mandates. And the Talmud is basically uh, uh, the codification of Jewish law. It's based on for, to some part, uh, the law of Moses, but for example, they know that they can't uh, do sacrifices in Israel. So what do they do? They have, you know, uh, teshuvah, I think it's called, where they, they do acts of righteousness and they repent of things. And, you know, they got all this system of stuff that's built up that they do. Okay, they're working their way to heaven, okay, is what they're doing. They're down at the Western Wall, they're wearing these special clothes, they go to the Sabbath, they don't eat pork, they do this and that and all of these things because they're, they know that there's a requirement of God but they don't know the gift of God which is found in Jesus Christ so they are who Paul is now speaking about anybody that isn't in Christ that hasn't discovered the freedom of Christ the fulfillment of the law in Christ uh, what then what is the result for the rest of the Jews for an answer Paul now cites them as Israel okay let me read it again so you see what then Israel has not obtained what it seeks once again if we have replaced the Jews, which is what Reformed theology says. Everybody got that, right? We are now Israel. If that's true, then how can he be saying that Israel, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. How can we be Israel if he's talking about Israel not obtaining what it seeks? It can't be. 
You have to pay attention to the words and the thought process of Paul. We have not replaced Israel. We are the church. Israel can be in the church. I mean, you've got Jewish believers that are in the church, and you've also got Gentiles. But they have not become this. There are parts of them that are here, but they are not this. Okay, that's it, it, it's as clear as it could be from this verse alone. And we've done this at least four or five times in the past uh, chapter of, the, of uh, Romans, chapter 10. He did the same thing. Israel, church, Israel, church. Okay, so um, for an answer, Paul now cites them as Israel. In other words, the majority is spoken of as the whole. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. We have. We have. We're all sitting here having received Jesus Christ, I hope, everybody. And so we have obtained what Israel was seeking. So we can't be Israel. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. The nation has failed to attain the very thing for which uh, it was continuously noted. Let me make a little note there. In the world of the Roman Empire, the majority of the people groups sought after power and wealth. Although this was certainly the case with many Jews, the overall aim of the nation was not power or wealth, but anybody know what their, their, the goal of Israel is to be something before God? What's that? kingdom well the kingdom but how do you attain that by it's a word righteousness. righteousness that's it exactly right righteousness however in their search for obtaining righteousness they became blinded to the only one who could make them righteous remember the law the man who does these things will live by them none of them did they all died they kept dying all the way right up until the time of Christ and it says in um, uh, what is it 1144 of Leviticus be ye holy for I am holy right those are the purposes of the book of Leviticus be be holy the man who does these things will live by them and they didn't do it in their search for righteousness they became blinded to the only one who could do it Jesus he was holy because he is God and he is holy okay and the man who does these things will live by them Jesus did those things and he lives by them he died but he didn't die for his own sins he died for our sins okay he was crucified by the the Romans and the Jews and the you know uh, he was crucified for our sins but he came out of the grave he came out of the grave because the wages of sin is death and he had no sin there you go one plus one equals two we just keep drumming through your head and eventually everything just makes a very very nice pattern in what God has done okay in their search for attaining righteousness they became blinded to Christ the only one who could do it we could ask who's fault was this okay directly from scripture we can see that it was a national self-inflicted wound because there were individuals who did in fact recognize Christ coming weren't there even before he was crucified there were people that saw Christ's coming and they knew it was him anybody think of who it was Anna Anna the daughter of Phanuel and Sam Simeon. Simeon, right? Zechariah, Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, heard and they believed. Simeon and Anna, who saw the child when he was brought to the temple, recognized him. So they knew that the Messiah had come. They were in anticipation of it. They were waiting on it. And when he came, the Lord revealed it to them because he knew their hearts. It is a self-inflicted wound that Israel as a whole did not see it. Because if one can, then any could have if they were directed properly. Okay. Well, uh, Herod 
when he asked the, the Jews, he said, you're, you're going to be born over there in, in uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem in Micah 5-2. They knew where it was going to be. They knew where it was going to be. They should have known the entire scope of his life. I mean, everything. Even John the Baptist, when he had his failing, what was it he said? Um, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? And what did Jesus do? He simply cited scripture. The, I'm going to misquote this, but you know, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the blind see, you know, he, he basically said these things. He said, all you need to do is just go back and look at the scriptures and everything that is happening is in fulfillment of that, right? And so everybody should have known. They should have known because nobody else is out there raising dead people. Okay, nobody else was doing the things that he was doing. Now you have charlatans that claim to do these things, but there is always a way of testing if somebody did or did not do those things. I mean, there's a person that's really dead for four days and they open up the grave and he walks out. Guess what? It was a real miracle. Okay, so there is a way of checking those things out. But the woman that uh, was lame for 18 years and he straightened her up on a Sabbath day, right? I mean, anybody could have said, well, she's been faking it for 18 years not going to happen, right? She she was literally bent over for 18 years. So there's proofs of it. There's not just somebody that walks into town and says, see, I'm a cripple, and I'll show you a cripple. <laughs> this is going to gross you out, but this is somebody that walks into town and he's really crippled. Oh, oh, he says, oh, I need help, right? That's a guy that's a charlatan. He walks in, he's got his back sticking up, right? And they say, uh, and then, it, oh, look, I'm healed. Why don't you do okay. that other thing Oh, you want me to do that here? <laughs> okay, here. Anybody that wants to try this, just follow along with this. You asked. We got people watching online. They might get a laugh at this. Okay. Put, put, put your hands out, right? And then you put your hands backwards. And then put your hands together. Okay, I got a few people that are willing to try. And then pull your arm forward. Okay, and then push your elbow through. Okay, and then once you've done that... <laughs> Pull it over your head. Right, there you go. Okay. Yeah, the kids in the projects love to see okay, that. You, you yeah. did that little jiggle and you've got rid of the hump on your back. You're all well now. I got rid of the hump on my back and I did the jiggle. And yeah, but you know, that's what I'm trying to say though, is that there are charlatans that can do stuff like that. And you think, oh, he's healed. You know, they've got people that will bring people in. They do this in charismatic churches. They'll bring them in on a thing and one leg is shorter than the other. And all the guy's done is he's just got his hip right. pushed up. And then he'll say, I'm gonna straighten out his leg. And you know, they've proven that these people are false. It just, it's so sad that there are people that do that. What Christ did was verifiable. It was real. That's the point I'm trying to make. And anyway, with the little thing with my back, I know it's kind of weird. Anyway, um, so- um, So the, are you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so from this springboard, from the belief of the people that saw him when he was young, from the springboard came the apostles and the disciples and others noted in the gospel record. After the resurrection, how many were saved on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000. About 3,000, that right. Okay, that's right. So these and others recorded in the Gospels and Acts show that even though Israel failed in this regard, a portion of the nation obtained the favored status of God's election. They became the elect. But if the remnant is elect, then there is an opposite side to the coin, isn't there? Paul explains that the rest were blinded. That's what he says right here in this verse. The word for were blinded is the Greek word eporothesan. It comes from a word which was applied to bony formations on joints, a callus or a spur. The thought then is something that is petrified or covered over in callus. 
in the New Testament. This is only used five times, and each is in a figurative sense. I'll give you another one, which is found in John chapter 12, um, where he cites the book of Isaiah. Uh, let me see here. Just so you get a grasp of what this word is trying to say. It's always used in a figurative sense, though. John chapter 12, and then we'll go to verse 40. It says, he is blinded. That word there, their eyes, and harden their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So they're using this word to show that there's almost a callous over their eyes and a hardness in their hearts. Okay, so um, let's see. Here we have a question to consider then. How were they hardened? And this comes down, I have to tell you what, this comes down to the difference between Reformed theology and uh, a dispensational <clears throat> basic, you know, the, the, the non-Reformed theology when it comes to free will. And people will say, on either side, okay, Reformed theology will say we hold to the absolute sovereignty of God and you don't because. And then we say it's just the opposite. We hold to the absolute sovereignty of God and you don't because. So we both are claiming that we are adhering to God's absolute sovereignty when we say our side or the other. I say we have free will and that fits in with God's sovereignty. And remember when we did the, uh, the uh, uh, sublapsinarianism, the prelapsinarianism, the uh, uh, Wesleyanism, and the um, uh, supralapsinarianism? You've got five of them, thank you, four of them. And when we did that, I showed how God's election works in different people's models. If you don't remember, you've got to go back and watch Romans 8.38 um, uh, study, and that will show you. You've got different views on when God's elections occurred in the process of redemptive history. Now, I'll qualify that right now so you understand, and I think I say it during the study. God does not think like we do. He knows everything immediately and intuitively. When we think, we think in different ways. There's dicursive thinking, which is you go from thought to thought. You know, she's wearing blue pants, and there's a poem. i got to fix that later, and then I say there's a roach over there, and that's dicursive thinking. Everything is just kind of going like this, right? Then syllogistic thinking is where you think, that is shaped like an L. It's got a cushion on it. It's got legs. It must be a chair. This, this, therefore this. And that's how we think. We have different ways of coming to conclusions, or we have different ways of thinking. We have dicursive thinking, we've got syllogistic thinking, and there are other ways that we process things. God does not do that, ever, okay? God knows everything immediately, intuitively, So and intuitively. So when you go through that study on Romans 8.38, you have to remember that everything that is laid out is from our perspective. How did God logically decide these things? Did the fall occur and then God chose people for salvation? Or did people God choose people for salvation before the fall of man? Did uh, the fall occur and then God uh, decided to send Jesus and then we choose Jesus and we become the elect? How does that work? And I talk about all of those. It's, it's a long study. It takes pretty much the whole, um, uh, the whole hour and a half. But you will understand that there is no claiming sovereignty Oh, in one view over another. God is sovereign in both views. It's how do you look at God's sovereignty? The fact that I have free will is a tenet that is taught from the very first page of man being on earth all the way to the end of, of, of the Bible. Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 22. Okay? The only difference is that Reformed theologians will say you do not have free will in salvation. They will never deny free will in every other aspect of your life. Read R.C. Sproul's commentary every single day, and they acceptance in salvation. 
And that's a cop out there. That's what that is. Okay. They don't understand how we can have free will and yet God is sovereign. And the answer is that God knows the choice we are going to make because God doesn't think in any of the ways that I just explained to you. He knew the choice we would make, but he allowed us the choice. Okay. Another thing is that they say, and I've read this commentary from RC several times and the people that, you know, uh, do his table talk magazine is that um, uh, we are dead in sins and we cannot seek after God. And the Bible doesn't say that when it's talking in uh, earlier in the book of Romans about um, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's speaking of Psalm 14, verse one and Psalm 53, verse one. They both say the same thing. They're speaking of the atheist. The atheist does not seek after God. In fact, David could not have written the words that he wrote in the Psalm and sought after God, okay, unless he had free will to do so. He's saying the atheist does not have this. And then he starts citing verses which are taken then out of context by Reformed theology in order to form a doctrine, okay? Oh, I remember what I said to you earlier. I'll read it the next time we uh, meet and uh, because the month will be over and I'll have that table talk. I read something that just had me infuriated about dispensationalism in the table talk this month. Anyway, um, I don't want to get off on too far of a tangent, but uh, the, the question is, and I gave you all of that background just now to bring out how did their hearts get hardened, okay? This goes back to the Exodus sermons when it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it says it back and forth and back and forth, and two different words are used, and the context must be understood. If you go through those Exodus sermons, it is as clear as can be that that man had free will. When it says God hardened his heart, it is a passive hardening, not an active hardening. Same thing with the people in the church today or those who are not in the church. God will passively harden somebody. And I'll tell you what that means. God gives to, he, he wants to set Pharaoh up in order to uh, have Israel delivered. He knows the outcome of what's going to happen. So how is he going to do it so that Pharaoh finally says, after first showing himself to be the great God, that he is also the redeemer. He has to show his greatness. If he just did something and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, okay, they can go, would that have showed the greatness of God? No, we wouldn't have the story showing the miraculous things that God has done. So what he did is he started out with the biggest possible miracle of all, right? No, he started out with a small one, something that the magicians in Egypt could duplicate, right? And he did that two times. And by the third time, they said, we can't do this. This is the finger of God, right? But it's still not a great miracle. It is a great miracle. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about in comparison here. Please don't misunderstand that. Everything God does is great. I'm talking about in comparison to the last one. Okay, so he, he, he builds them up slowly. And then some of those could be attributed to chance, right? All of a sudden, you get locusts. Well, they've had locust plagues before. It does say that it's the greatest one that ever occurred, and there'll never be another one like it again, and blah, blah, blah. But you could say, well, that was, and it even says how he did the locust, right? An east wind drove them in, okay? So everything is described here. He's using nature in order to affect this, but he's going through these, these sequence of uh, events, and he is passively hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's not actively doing it. Pharaoh is the one that says, I'm not going to let them go. Get out of here. My magicians just did that, and they did something a little bit greater, right? No, I'm not going to let him go. And he's slowly but surely having his heart hardened, but he is freely doing it. All he had to do was say, you know what? You claim to be a God, substantiate it before me, yeah? 
and do it in a way that I can respect and I will follow you wherever you go. That's what this book is for. It's to say, I am God and I am going to demonstrate it to you. I have history to prove it to you. And all of this is recorded history for us. Now we have the choice to make. It does not in any way affect God's sovereignty in order for us to pick up this book and say, I choose Jesus. Why? Because in John chapter 5, this is, I was emailing with somebody just a day ago about this, and that's why it's fresh on my mind. In John chapter 5, he's talking about the Word of God. You search the scriptures there, what point of me, right? And then in John 6, 44, it says, no, uh, um, uh, yeah, no man cometh unto me unless the Father draws him, right? Well, what is the context? The Father has been drawing him through the scriptures. He's been drawing him, and they rejected that. Well, if they've rejected the scriptures and they speak of me, then they're going to reject me, right? The entire premise of what he says there is based on free will, every single bit about it, and yet it shows the sovereignty of God. And I would say, from my perspective, even greater than Reformed theology, which says that God just does everything, he chooses everything, there is no free will at all involved, you are going to love me, you are going to be saved, you are going to worship me. To me, that doesn't show a God that really cares about what his creatures that he created desire, right? You are going to obey me, right? And as I said, when I defended that, when somebody comes to Jesus through a false message of Jesus, right? And then they hear the true message of Jesus, you have the spirit of Antichrist, and then you've got the spirit of Christ. And that proves that free will is involved because the same person went to Jesus in two different levels. He went to a false Jesus and then a true Jesus. So our free will is a tenet which is taught in scripture, and I believe that it far outweighs uh, the reformed view of sovereignty, but that's just me. Surely, and yes, doesn't even the angels prove that they had free will? The angels had free will. They're a different type of being, but I, I'll explain it very quickly. It's a, angelology is a really long study, but um, uh, I've talked about man's nature before. We are what is called progressively actuating potential. Okay, progressive means it happens a little bit at a time, right? Actuating means something is happening, and potential means that something can happen. Okay, so this book is progressively actuating potential. If I take a match to it, it's going to start burning, right? And it is going to become ashes. It's going to become something else. So it has the potential to become something else. It also has the potential to become very old and very cherished and worth a lot of money, right? It has the potential for the pages to actually crumble in my fingers. It has all this potential. Well, that's what man is. I have the potential to become handsome. It's probably not going to happen, but I have that potential, right? I have the potential to get old. My beard has the potential to turn gray or I can put something in it and make it turn any color I want. That's potential. So when you have potential and it's actuated, then it becomes actual, okay? So it's progressively actuating potential. That's what man is. We are uh, solid beings, we are physical beings, and we have this. Angels are what is called fully actuated potential. In other words, an angel was created, and the moment he was created, he made a choice, and everything about that angel is actuated. He is actual. There's no potential in an angel. What, how do we know that? Because angels are what type of beings? Spirit beings. Spirits have no potential, okay? This goes back to philosophy. It's not really something you're gonna find in the Bible, but it is something that the Bible will teach. There won't be anything in the Bible to contradict this, okay? But an angel is a spirit being, and it is fully actuated potential. It has no potential to become, all right? God is act. 
his pure act. He's perfectly simple in his being, okay? If he was not perfectly simple in his being, if he had any parts at all, then time would be associated with those parts. It would be becoming older, or they would be getting bigger or smaller, or they'd be getting softer or, or wetter or something. There are no parts in God. That means he is act. But he had no potential at the beginning. He has always been act, and therefore he is pure actuality. Unlike an angel which is created, which is uh, fully, fully actualized potential, he is pure act. So there's a difference between the two, but that is the nature of an angel right there. Whereas we are progressively actuating potential. And we will always be physical bodies. We are going to be spirit beings, according to Paul. Spiritual beings, not spirit. I said spirit, spiritual beings. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. We, will, we are now a reconnected to God being. Adam was a spiritual being, but he was a physical being. Okay, that's what we will be. We will be spiritual beings, and we will always have potential. We'll always be able to learn about the greatness of God. We'll always be able to seek out the things that God has done in creation and, you know, in whatever realm that he has devised that we can't even comprehend right now. It will go on and on and on and on, and it will never get boring. That's one thing about God. Because he is infinite, there's always something to learn about him forever. Even if we learn every single possible thing about God for all of eternity, because he's infinite, there's still an infinite amount left to learn about him. There's never a time where we won't have an abundance to know about God. So there you go. Um, that explains angels and man and this, the nature of God. But um, blinded, uh, how are they hardened? That We just got through a lot to get back to the hardening of the heart. The Bible does not tell us in this case how they were hardened. In the case of the elect, it says that they have obtained there's that status according to the election of grace. Thus it was of God. There's no doubt about that. Nobody can deny that all grace comes from God. Okay. However, in the case of those who are hardened, the Bible only notes that it is so, but without designating the source. Those who recognized the Messiah were given grace. Those who rejected him were hardened. What can be inferred then is that the action is, as I talked about Pharaoh, is it active or passive? It is passive. That's absolutely right on the part of God concerning their hardening. To understand this, oh, I'm going to give you an example. I didn't. I should read these before I come into class. If I don't, to understand this, think of a group of people stuck in a large pit in the ground. In the pit are the instructions to get out of the pit, but they lack the skills to fully comply with the instructions. In the instructions, though, it tells that a way will be made available by the author who wrote the instructions for them to get out of the pit. Eventually, the author of the instructions lowers a line down for the people. Those who recognize that this is the pre-mentioned way, because they have the instructions to tell us a line is coming, this is the pre-mentioned way of getting out of the pit, take hold of the rope, and they're pulled out. Despite this, there are those who stubbornly set about and continue to work on the instructions, never realizing that those instructions though complete, are incapable of getting the people out of the pit. Is anybody seeing the law here? The law is the instructions. It tells you exactly how to get out of the pit, but they use the law as a means to an end. It was not. The law was intended to end in the fulfillment of it by Christ. He is the instructions of the law. That's the problem with the Hebrew Roots movement. 
they've gone from the grace of Christ right back into the law. They've gone back to the instructions, just as the Jews never got out of the instructions. So you've not only got a group of people that rejected the rope in the first place, we got a group of people that say, I have the rope, but they're still working on the instructions and neglecting the rope. So, okay, so not only because, um, let me read that again. They stubbornly set about to continue to work on the instructions, never realizing that those instructions, though complete, are incapable of getting the people out of the pit. Not because the instructions were faulty, there's nothing wrong with the law here, okay? But because the skills needed to comply with them were lacking. Only what the instructions promised, the rope, could do it. They became so obsessed with following the instructions that they actually miss the grace of the rope. Eventually, the pit consumes them. When what they sought, they did not find, and what was solely their own fault for failing to lift their eyes and see that they had a way which had been prepared for them. The hardening was passive. Okay, have it your way, the rope gets pulled up. Okay, everybody see that? It's kind of like the example I gave a while ago about flying or sailing or, or uh, swimming or however you got to the island right the island of grace and all these different ways and when you're there what do you do do you get back on the boat and go back you know but the boat was only intended to go one way and it sinks out in the ocean and you're lost okay if you remember that example if not go back and watch that other uh thing because i talk about there but the pit here is a good example as well the instructions are given they tell the solution but the jews even though the solution is standing right there in front of them He's been raised out of the grave. They say, no, we're going to keep working our own instructions until we come to the end of them. And they will never get to the end of them because the end of them is standing right there. He is the fulfillment of them. Okay, so God says, have it your way. It's kind of like, uh, what is it? Burger King? McDonald's. Have it your Burger King. Okay, anyway, have it your way. Um, anybody remember the ingredients for the Big Mac it used to be very popular. Special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on sesame seed bun. Two LBP special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on sesame seed bun. When I was a kid, they had. It's funny. I was listening to the um, iPad when I was cleaning the bathrooms before you got here, and music just plays. Whatever music, it just comes up. The YouTube selects it, and Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons came on. When I was a kid, I was sick at home. And, um, I was sick. I was at home, and they were having um, on 970 WFLA, which used to be a radio station here. They had, um, uh, which it still is, but it's just AM. They had uh, a contest, and if you could say that in less than five seconds, then you would win whatever they had that day. And I won tickets to Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons because I said, "To I'll be petty, special cheese pickles on use on sesame seed bun." Yeah, I did it in two and a half seconds or something. Anyway, so um, I, I got my tickets, and I never went. The tickets meant more to me than seeing him. So I, I kept those tickets for years until I went in the military, and then they got lost. Yeah, I kept. I was so proud that I had those tickets. So anyway, there you go. I'm glad somebody remembered that. That was that was a great jingle. Anyway, um, life application. The instructions from God, in fact, point to the proper means of being reconciled to God. The law was intended to lead the people to understand their need for Christ. But in their zeal for the law, which is what Paul is speaking about, they have a zeal but not of knowledge, they missed its purpose. This still happens today. People fail to see Christ as the fulfillment Oh, remember I cited that a while ago. We we're talking about uh, until all is fulfilled, not a jot or a tittle, kutzel shall you, shall fall from the law. It's fulfilled in Christ. But people are still trying to work their way to heaven instead of trusting that Christ has actually done it. So let me pick that back up. 
and it says um, uh, people fail to see Christ as the fulfillment and the end of the law and attempt to reinsert the law where it does not belong. Thus they condemn themselves. I hate to tell you, when somebody does not come to Christ as he has chosen, they haven't come to Christ at all. There's no plan B, okay? So, uh, let's see here. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, therefore believe and be saved. Excuse me. Romans 11, 8. So, I got yes. Yeah. Kind of a dumb question. That, that, um, you know what the teacher says. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, in verse 7, what's the description of the word elect? Okay. Elect is a person that is chosen by God for salvation. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's the elect. That's, and are they aware that they're elect? Well, yes, because they chose Christ and they became elect. All right. Okay. And that goes back to Romans 8.38, which view of election is correct. And that's, uh -huh. you know, if you didn't see that one, then you can watch it. And I lay it out very simply with ducks in a river. And I show the, the, the ducks are in a perfect pond. There's no problem. They're happy little ducks, right? And then there's a cataclysm and a river flows out of the pond and the ducks get sucked into it. Okay, that is the fall of man. And then from there, I show the different ways that, or views that people have. I'll, really quickly, I'll just do this. You've got four basic views. You've got um, uh, superlapsinarianism. This is God elects people even before the fall. Even before man has fallen, every person that will ever live was elected by God in advance of the fall. This would be a really perverse God. And the reason why is because he says, I'm going to choose this person for salvation and these other people I am actively choosing to go to hell, okay? That is, very few people hold to this, but that's called a, a double predestination. It's, it's, it's a very sick theology. Uh, the next one would be uh, standard Reformed theologians would say that uh, there's the fall and then uh, God then chooses the elect and the rest he just ignores. Okay, it's not the same God that was described a moment ago, but this is a God that just doesn't care about the, the uh, non-elect. He says, I'm gonna choose these people for salvation, I'm gonna reject the others, okay? One verse, just one verse that is a problem with that. I can think of one right now from Peter, go ahead. I know you know it, yes you can. God desires that all men will be saved. All men be saved and none perish all come to a saving knowledge of jesus christ okay that right there blows that one out of the water paul peter could not have written those words if that was true he does not elect some and just let others go off to hell he desires that all are saved okay and then the third option is the one that i would teach which is there's the fall and then god at that time now remember what i said god doesn't think in sequence this is all what god has planned but we have to put it in a logical sequence so we understand there's this Garden of Eden, there's the fall, and there's this cataclysm, and we're all heading down to the waterfall. We're all going to get quacked up, every one of us. But what he does is he says, before this happens, I'm going to send my son. Before he makes his election, I am going to send my son. And that's what it says in the Bible. Behold the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? Right when the world, he knew that he was going to send a son. So he's decided, he's determined, I'm going to send my son to save the people of the world. But it is voluntary. It is, I, they must make the choice. And so when the ducks are going down, here's this, this uh, mother duck on the side of the uh, thing saying, come on out to me, I'll take care of you, right? I will take care of you. 
And if you don't, you're going to go down there and you're going to get quacked up. And so that is what the Bible is doing. It's telling us the means, just like the, the rope right there. It is the instruction manual for getting out of the river. Okay, and then you've got one other view, which very quickly, I'm not going to get into it in any details, Arminianism. It means that there's a duck on the side of the road, the big mother duck, and he's saying, come on out, you're going to get quacked up. And they get out, but their feet are stuck in mud all the time. They are never safe with the mother duck. Okay, I should, anyway. I, and the reason why is because you can lose your salvation, right? And so you're never sure, even if you're out of the river or not, you're just in this mire. And any time one of these, what he does is he leaves lesser ducks. Not that this isn't the major duck. We shouldn't call him a mother duck. We'll call him the major duck, whatever. He leaves lesser ducks. And those lesser ducks say, well, you're not saved anymore. And that would be your pastors that say, well, you've screwed up and now you've lost your salvation. You need to do this and that and one thing and another in order to get back right with God again. Which means that it's not of... It's not of grace, it's of works, okay? So that's the last view, it's nonsense. But that's very quickly, watch it. I, I get into a little more detail and I give you the words. The words are big, but don't let them scare you. Uh, Sublapsinarianism, sub means below, okay? Lapse means the fall. Arianism would be the doctrine of. So the doctrine of after the fall, right? Supra would be before the doctrine of the fall, right? whatever, you know? Don't worry about the big words, just look at the concepts and the little ducks and it's very understandable. Anyway, we'll go on to Romans 11.8. See, no dumb question, good question. 11.8 says, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. The previous verse, 11.7, was noted that the elect had obtained what the majority had missed because they were blinded. Once again, Israel is not the church. It can't be because he used the term Israel and he says they haven't obtained it. So we've got the distinction there. He's talking about Israel, he's talking about the Jews. Very important distinction that Reformed theology has completely missed, okay? To support this, the rest were blinded. Paul reaches again back to scripture which prophesied these things in advance. Isaiah saw it in advance and he wrote about them. He didn't know what he was writing at times. And you know, the, the prophets longed to look into the things it says. I know it's a misquote, but they wrote things down and then they'd study it. They, what did I write? I don't understand what I've written about. Okay, but he did prophesy it. So he says, um, he begins with just as it is written. This is Paul going back. It's called Ad Fountainus, back to the fountain. Though this is not a direct quote, it holds the same intent and sediment of his citations. These are from the following verses found in Deuteronomy 29.4 and Deuteronomy 29.10. I said Isaiah, it's Moses, okay? He went back to Moses this time. Understanding these references, Paul says that God has given them. It is God who is both in control of all things and who knows the end from the beginning. If God does not know the, the end from the beginning, then he is not God. That's right. He's not omnipotent. God knows all things. He knows the outcome of all things, how they will logically play out. He knows every single thing, every spinning electron in every atom throughout the entire... It's a humbling thing to think. In him, we live and move and have our being. I mean, if you think about it, there's nothing that is hidden from God. Everything that you think, everything that you do, he knows, okay? That's a humbling thing when you go and you screw up or when you do something that you shouldn't be doing. He knows. But the thing about Jesus is that it shows the amazing grace of God. 
that he knows what we're thinking, the things that we're doing, and yet he still saved us and he still continues to save us simply because we believe that in him we live and move and have our being. It takes a giant leap of faith to say, I am right now in the presence of God because we don't see him, we don't smell him, we don't taste him. He is pure act, okay? It's a giant leap of faith. And then to say beyond that, that this God who is everywhere at all times, past, present, and future, and in all places throughout the universe and beyond, okay, that he stepped into this realm and he gave his son for us. That is what real faith is, is to say, I understand that and I accept that. No wonder God is pleased because it's so hard, it's almost incredible to imagine. But this is what he has said in his word, and so there you go. That's why we're saved, is because we believe the incredible. We have taken God at his word, and we have accepted that premise. So, understanding that, it says, understanding these references, Paul states that God has given them. It is God who is both in control of all things and who knows the end from the beginning. He knows the wickedness of the heart of man and their propensity for turning from him. Saying God hasn't given them doesn't necessarily mean that God actively did this, but that the action could have passively occurred, just like it did with Pharaoh. Think it through logically, and we can see God passively working in ways. God gives us the law. The people ignorantly turn from the law on their own accord because they find it offensive. There is not one Reformed theologian that would say that Israel was forced to turn away from the law. They will always say that they had free will and they turned from their God because that's what the Bible says. You can't deny what the Bible says. It's as clear as it could be. God gave them the law and they turned their hearts away from them. All right? God said it would happen and therefore it can be stated God has given them. Even though he didn't actively do it to them, he gave them the law, they turned their hearts away because he gave them the law, God gave them. Everybody got that? That's just the way it is. If Adam and Eve were created and they were put in the Garden of Eden and there was no law given, then sin couldn't have been imputed. But God gave them a law and passively he then condemned them because they actively ate the fruit. The free will was exercised and they fell. But he didn't have to do that. He did not have to put that in there and say, we're going to do this. But he did it because he's infinitely wise and because it was the best course of action. The end of the chapter explains it. Man has become like us, right? We became beings that understood certain things. We have become like God, and we never would have had that if he didn't do this. So all of the misery, all of the death, all of the children that are dying in Syria and all of the things you see that are so terrible, I got a letter today, you know, I was reading it, and I stopped because these people told me about their son that had died, right? And so I, it was some time ago, but, I mean, they lost their son. There's misery and there's heartache in this world, right? All of that could have been averted by not giving them that law. Giving, they could have eaten that fruit or any fruit they wanted, no law, no transgression, but he knew the best. He knew the best for us. We have to keep that in our minds when things go bad. Despite all of the bad that happens, all the fights we get into, God's plan is infinitely wise, and we will share in the goodness of that plan. Okay, so we cannot say that God has given them actively. He gave them the law, they turn from it, it is a passive action, okay? A perfect example of this today is the complete turning away from God's fixed and unchanging laws in the church, right? Homosexual marriage, for example, has now been... Oh, no, I thought that was me. It was somebody else. Homosexual marriage, for example, has now been condoned in many major denominations 
and others are running toward the same pulpit of perversion to join in the debauchery. They have been given what they desired by their own wicked inclinations. They hear, but they don't understand. And they see, but they don't perceive. Jesus speaks this way in Matthew 13, which is under the law to Israel, but he speaks the same way. So let's go to Matthew 13, and it says there, oops, too far. In verse 10, it says, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. He's writing to his own people. He's talking to them about what Isaiah says. Isaiah's writing to his people. Jesus is saying it applies to them, and they still don't get it, okay? And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Is any of this active? No, it's all passive. God gave them the law, and they've just closed their eyes and their hearts and their ears to it. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Free will. Even right there, free will is given. These people see Christ. They understand he's the fulfillment of what Isaiah said, and they exercise their free will. David could not have written what he wrote, which is quoted by Paul in the book of Romans, unless he was one of these people that Jesus is speaking to. Okay, free will is a tenet in the Bible. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. Once again, free will. They desired to see the outcome of what they had written or what they had read about. They desired it. That is completely contrary to what Reformed theology teaches, that you have no free will in the matter. Why go to church? Why tell anybody about Jesus Christ? Why? There's absolutely no need to evangelize because God's will cannot be thwarted, okay? But that's not the issue. The issue is that we have free will, and that's why we go out and tell people things. Okay, he says, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The state which God has given them is first called a spirit of stupor. Here is the only use of the word katazios in the New Testament. The word specifically indicates a violent strike. The figurative intent then is the stunned bewilderment which happens after such a strike, as if seeing stars. The word of God is direct and it is poignant. It relates absolute truth and often it is so directed at the sins of those who read it that it cuts to the deepest seat of emotion. And I said this when we were in Leviticus. I said when I read the book of Leviticus, even after having preached on every verse in the entire book of Leviticus, when I get back to it, I always feel cut to my heart, always. And it happens when I read the book of Ezekiel too. That's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to show us our desperate need for something other than this law. Because if that law is all that we have, we might as well just go out and party it up because we are not making it. We are not going to make it. But I love reading Leviticus because it shows me the greatness of what Christ could do and what he did do for us. Okay, so when this happens, that deep seat of emotions from reading the law, 
It can affect a great change in the soul who so desperately wants to be free of the addiction or perversion which is pointed out. But the opposite is also true. Some who are confronted with the direct and unwavering truth of scripture mentally cut off the assault as if it were a ridiculous lie. When this happens, the one so assailed will attempt to diminish the truth of what was read by downplaying the divine source of the words, making personal exceptions for what is stated. You know, people do that all the time. I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? Or God doesn't care about that. He knows that I do it and he's already forgiven me. You know, that kind of stuff. He says, uh, um, confronted with the direct and unwavering truth, they mentally cut it off, okay? They downplay the divine source of the words, making personal exceptions or outright rejection of God because of what they feel is unfair. And all of these things are things that you're going to see when you evangelize people. When you talk to them and say, well, what, it's not fair. God, How can God judge this person over in Africa that's never heard of Jesus? answer is very simple. That guy's already on his way to hell, just like you are and just like I was. We're all on there that way anyway, okay? God isn't unfair. God is loving. That's why he sent Jesus. We are the ones that caused that fracture and that, that pond to crack and to start going off towards the waterfall. It wasn't God's fault. He gave us the option and he gave us the consequences. On the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. That's right. And it wasn't a physical death, it was a spiritual death, and it happened that day, and the fracture was permanent. It could not be repaired by us at all. I say that at the end of every single sermon that we do. I say it always. That fracture is there, and it is permanent. Only Christ can take care of it. We cannot. There is nothing we can do to ever take care of that fracture, okay? So they downplay it. They feel it's unfair. And what happens? A spirit of stupor sets in. Exactly what Paul says right here. Let me read it again. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. It doesn't mean that it was active. I've just given you a million examples of how it can be passive, and it is passive. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. It is a passive action on the part of God. He doesn't actively condemn anybody to hell. I mean, why would you do that? Why would you make something simply to destroy it? We do that with bombs, right? I'm going to make this for one purpose, is to destroy what I've made. Well, that's insane. That's why war is insane. But we have to have war because we're in a fallen world. We have to defend ourselves. But if you think it through to its logical conclusion, why would you make something to simply destroy it? Right? Makes no sense. God made man to fellowship with man. He made man to be with man and to, to show him his glory for all of eternity. It would be crazy for him to just make man and say, okay, I'm going to condemn him forever. And that's why Peter says what he does. He wishes that none should perish, but all come to a saving knowledge, right? Okay, so along with this comes eyes that should not see. A spirit of stupor will immediately cloud one's vision of what's right. A sad example of this is seen in the people of Israel today. They have twice, twice been exiled for disobedience. During the second dispersion, which began in AD 70, there were 2,000 years of calamity. Whose fault was it? Was it God's fault? It was their fault. He told them what was gonna happen. He gave them the remedy for it not to happen. Everything that needed to be done so that it would, do you need one? Do you have um, cough drops? Do you, do you want one? Oh, you got some. Okay. All right. I don't want you passing that on me over there. Um, so uh, if one reads and accepts the words of Leviticus 26, which we did just three or four weeks ago, and Deuteronomy 28, which parallel it, 
there can be only one acceptable answer. The wounds are self-inflicted. But their eyes will not allow the message to reach into the heart. Instead of acceptance, there is a projection of the fault in outward directions. Oh, it's the Muslims, it's the Christians, it's this, it's that. And I said this during that Leviticus 26 sermon. I did three sermons on that passage, and one of them I opened by saying that I went to a Jewish funeral, girl that I've known since I was a kid, her father died, and I went to the funeral, and the rabbi, talking over before they start throwing the, the dirt on top of the grave, brought up Leviticus 26. He says, ah, Moses wrote about it. He just completely blew it off. Exactly what I'm writing about right here, or talking about right here, is exactly what he did. They projected it. He, ah, oh, it doesn't really mean what it means, and blah, blah, blah. Twice it's happened, and it happened exactly as Moses said it would happen, meaning that it was divinely inspired by the Lord, and yet they reject it. The fault is self-inflicted. It's a self-inflicted wound. Okay, so um, instead of acceptance, there's projection of the fault in outward directions. Even when told by others that God's word is true and is to be taken at face value, there is no understanding because they have also been given ears that should not hear. And the stupor blocks out the information. There is a stubborn refusal to acknowledge personal guilt and personal responsibility. And this has been going on according to scripture for 3,000 years. 500 years. Moses told them of their attitude. Isaiah and the other prophets repeated it, and the New Testament continues on as a witness to it even to this very day, as Paul writes, to this very day. It continues on. The spirit of stupor, it is a self-inflicted wound. And how do we know that this is true? It's because there are certain Jews that have received Jesus, right? And they said, this is me. This is my people, and we did this thing. They suddenly accept responsibility for their own actions. So it validates what God has said in his own word. If all of the Jews says, no, that doesn't apply to me, but there has always been an elect, a remnant according to grace, right? And when they acknowledge that and they say, yes, this is actually true, it just validates God's word every time that a Jew comes to Jesus Christ. And guess what? It's going to happen to the church someday. It's going to be something called the... Rapture, thank you. And all of these people that are standing in pulpits and teaching the wrong message and saying, oh, this stuff is uh, its because of the conservatives and it's because of Donald Trump or it's because of, you know, whatever th agenda they think. They're going to be standing there and going, and they're going to say, you know what? And they're going to have to make a choice at that time. They're going to have to say, it's correct, or they're going to keep teaching the false message and become a part of the one world system, consigning themselves to hell forever. Okay, it was validated in Israel twice. It's going to be evaluated. It's going to be validated. Thank you. In the church soon enough. Okay, evaluate. Why did I say evaluated? Validated. Okay. Anyway, um, so here we have um, only when a person is willing to remove the blinders and acknowledge that they are a part of the problem, not a part of the solution, will they see Scripture for what it truly is, which is God's word. Right? Every one of us came to that conclusion at some time in our life. We're all on different levels of that right now. Some of us are still beginners, and some of us are up here, and some of us are over here and over here. But we all have come to the state where we say, I am the problem. I am a part of it, and I can't get myself out of it, but I understand that he can. And once we come to that conclusion, then everything falls into place. That is what we need to understand, is Jesus Christ and what he has done. And then we can say, problem solved. 
But until then, it's just everything else is somebody else's fault. Everything, it's just projection. That's what it comes down to. So um, where was I? God's word. It is truthful. It is predictive. It is unchanging and mixed with warnings of wrath for disobedience and favor for obedience. God is God. And we are humans. Until we accept him at his word, there will only be resistance leading to a spirit of stupor. And it's all a self-inflicted wound. It was passively, not actively done by God. Reformed theology gets a demerit on that particular aspect. Life application, though Paul is speaking of Israel's spirit of stupor, blindness, and deafness, this same state applies to any who look at God's word and then dismiss a portion or all of it is unreliable. I'm going to talk about that at the beginning of the next sermon. A perfect example of this is the once again, I bring it up, and every time I bring this up, I get at least a thousand emails, and I don't care. It's just such an obvious one. It's the ordination of women to become pastors. The Bible says don't do it. It's very clear in 2 Timothy, oh, but that was written to a certain church over a certain issue, and they, they pull Paul out, and they say, well, that doesn't apply today. It is a prescriptive writing, okay? But it's such an obvious thing. And yet we're going to go to this guy, and we're going to go to this guy, and we're going to go to the Episcopal Church, because they have lots of ordained women. We're going to go to the Methodist Church, and they all agree. So, Charlie, you must be wrong, because they all agree on it. It doesn't matter if every single person on this planet disagrees with you. If you are taking this word in context, and you stand against every one of them, you will be rewarded for that. Okay? And if you're wrong, guess what? you receive the greater judgment if you're a teacher, or you'll just get some rewards taken off if you're not. Right? But that's just the way it is. But we don't, we don't base theology based on polls. We don't base it, you know, unless you're in a church that does. I mean, how much money comes in or, you know, how many people are sitting in the pews. You can base your theology that way, but it doesn't help anybody at all. It does nothing to satisfy. Absolutely nothing. Stick to the word and God will reward you. Might not be in this life, but he will reward you. Okay? Ordination of women. Um, Let's see here. However, this is rejected, not based on any reasonable defense, but because of a spirit of stupor. It doesn't mean that they're not saved, but it means that they have a spirit of stupor. God's word says this. Leave it alone. Okay? Don't take, take things out of context. Whatever the word says has been given by God. He is God. We are humans. We must accept his word lest we be found to fight against him. And we have time for another one. Good. 11.9. Let me read that. And David says, now he goes from Moses to David. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Okay, verse 9 that I just read you is an amended quote from Psalm 69, verse 22. Does anybody know who wrote Psalm 69? I just read it to you. Oh. I thought that was a trick question. No, but Paul said, and David says, right? So, yeah, okay, he thought it was a trick question. Everybody else is anxiously awaiting to find out. Psalm uh, 69, verse 22, it says, I was just being a jerk there. Sorry, guys. Um, Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. And he goes on in verse 23. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually, okay? So it's a little bit of amended, uh, I won't say a paraphrase, but he's amending it for our situation. And David says is no different here than saying scripture says. When Jesus said, Moses said, guess what? That means that scripture says, because Moses simply wrote what? He wrote what God told him. 
He didn't write anything else. All right, he took what God told him and that was it. And when he says, Isaiah says, it's scripture. And when sometimes he says, and scripture says, then he's speaking of scripture. It's all one idea that shows the inspiration goes both from God through the word and also from man, okay? But from God through the man, okay? So um, scripture says, or God has said, this is wonder, the wondrous nature of the word of God. What is spoken by a man is actually a thought breathed out by God through the man. There's a harmonious blending of God's word with the uniqueness of the person relaying that word in style, in emotion, and in thought. We've got Jeremiah. If I read Jeremiah, I know that that's Jeremiah, right? If I had never read the second half of Jeremiah, and I'd say, that sounds just like the prophet Jeremiah, right? Because you know, when David writes a psalm, it's different than the sons of Korah. It just is. You know that it's different. When Paul writes, you say, well, that's Paul. I, you just, you have this feeling. Now, people can be close to somebody like Paul, but, you know, it, you, you know. Now, I'll give you an example of inspiration. I bring it up from time to time before I go on. Is A good way to think of it is music. It's just a very simple example. You've got a uh, perfect example here. I, I, it comes up on my YouTube channel all the time. Is the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And uh, what it is is the Danish National Orchestra. I think it's the Danish National Dutch. Uh, did you? Did you? Did, it's very good. They do the good, the bad, and the ugly. They, they they took all of Clint Eastwood's movies and they made a symphony out of them. And I'm telling you what. But you know that it's not the guy that did the movie originally. You can hear what's his name, Sergio. Anyway, um, you you can hear the difference. But you know it's the same song, so you can say, well, that's a song by. And yet at the same time, you can tell that somebody else is doing it. The example I give, and I always get a nice email when I give this because there's a lot of people that used to love this guy, Eddie Van Halen. If you ever listen to Eddie Van Halen, he was a rock guy when I was in, in junior high and high school. The guy could play absolutely amazing guitar. And when he played, you knew it was Eddie Halen. But guess what? If Eddie Halen played um, Bach with his guitar, you'd know that he was playing Bach but you'd also know that it was Eddie Halen playing it, okay? So when you have divine inspiration, you have somebody that is being used and you have somebody that is conveying a message and the two form into something just like Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen pay, playing somebody else's music. You know that's his music, but you also know that it's him who's playing it. That's the idea. It's a very simple way of looking at inspiration, but it resolves the problem of how does this happen? God speaks through those people. His word is being conveyed through that person and his unique style is coming out. So when you read Isaiah, you know you're reading Isaiah, right? Okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, there's that blending. The psalm is used on several occasions in the New Testament, meaning Psalm 69, as pointing to Christ. The verse just prior to this one, verse 21, is certainly messianic in nature. Let me take you there. It's uh, Psalm 69, verse 21. And I didn't read that, but I've lost my page, and i got to go back and find it. They also gave me gall for my food. Oh, yeah, he also gave me gall for my food. You know that's speaking of Christ and the cross, right? So he's prophesying, but he's also giving truths about Israel in the same psalm, okay? Um, where was it? Verse 21, okay, Matthew 27, 34, shows its fulfillment in the offering of the sour wine mixed with gall to Christ at the crucifixion. So David said it, Matthew confirms it, right? Understanding this context, we can see that Paul's citing of it, Psalm 69, is not intended as an imprecation by him towards the Jews, but rather as 
prior predictions which would come about on them. He's not saying, well, you guys, here, this applies to you, and he's, you know, let me read it again. Let their table be a snare and a trap. He's not saying that as an imprecation against them. You guys are out because he's saying that this was told in advance. Just look at what he said, and you'll understand that he's speaking about you. Your own forefather, your patriarch, David, spoke this about you. Okay, so he's not making a finger pointing. He's making an obvious connection for them to see. Okay, so it says, um, hey, where is this? Where was I? Um, sour mix. Okay, because of their rejection of Jesus, the one who fulfilled their scriptures, which are the written basis of what established them as a people, the result would be that God would let their table become a snare and a trap. The table is the place where one partakes in God's blessing in the most personal manner. It is a place of sharing in the abundance the Lord provides, relaxing while enjoying it, and fellowshipping with those who unwind at the same table. If you think about it, when you want to get to know somebody personally, what do you do? You invite them over for a meal, or you take them out for a dinner and you talk, right? That's If you really say, I just need to get to know this guy personally, it's the best way to do it. It may be just sitting out on the dock having a burger together, or maybe walking downtown eating something, ice cream, while you're talking. But a meal is always the time when you get to know somebody the best, all right? And it's a time when you unwind, when you can look each other in the eyes. You don't have any of the constraints of the world around you, okay? The symbolism of it is seen in a most notable way in the 23rd Psalm, where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David's table was set in the presence of his enemies. In other words, he could relax, he could enjoy God's abundance without any fear. His enemies were subdued, and so nothing would disturb his moment of ease, fellowship, and nourishment. In contrast to this, the Jews who had rejected Christ were now Christ's enemies. In this special place where they would look for peace, blessing, and abundance, meaning the table, Instead, they would find, as David says, a snare and a trap. The snare is the Greek word pagida. It carries the notion of making it fast. An anchor, for example, is called a pagis. It's something that holds a ship fast. It makes the, fist, the ship keep from breaking away from uh, where it's at, right? It holds it fast. And then uh, this implement then is used figuratively in a moral sense to steal away the spiritual blessings that the Lord would otherwise provide. Each time this word is used in the New Testament, it follows along with this figurative sense, okay? It's something that holds fast. The trap is the Greek word theron, literally a hunting. This is its only use in the Bible, but the sense of it is possibly that of a net. The snare holds the prey, the net or trap is used to capture it for the kill. From this point, the words move on to say that the table will become a stumbling block and a recompense. The stumbling block is what one trips over. It is the sin that ends in ruin. Citing this indicates that the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ will first snare and then entrap them, and this will lead to their downfall. This is what Paul is saying. He's not speaking about the church here, is he? But he's identified them as Israel. This is why it's so important, because when we get towards the end of Romans 11, Reformed theologians are gonna say, see, this is speaking about us all of a sudden when he's already showing right now that it cannot be us. It cannot be, it is Israel who he's speaking about. Israel can be a part of the church, but Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. Israel is Israel. We've got Jewish friends that we know that 
is probably sitting here taking care of the computer right now, right? And yet, he is a part of the church. But we are not him. We are not Jews. He is a Jew. Okay, we have to keep these. Paul is making this for a very logical reason, is to get us to understanding what he's going to talk about later in Romans 11. It seems like a lot of disconnected stuff. It is not. He's being very clear about what he's doing. Okay, so um, uh, sequence of the words is logical. One following the other to show the inevitable result of rejecting Christ. In a lesser way, it is the natural course of any sin. If one steals, the very thing they thought would enrich them first becomes a snare, and they are lured in and held fast. They then are hunted and trapped because of their action. What they had hoped for being for their benefit is what caused them to fall. And the result of their fall is arrest and imprisonment. If this is the natural course for sin, which we all know it is, how stern must be the ultimate sin of rejecting God's offering of his son. And once again, that cannot be as Reformed theology says. They have willingly rejected this offer. It was offered to them and they rejected it. And once again, we have proof of that because a certain number of them chose Jesus Christ standing there in Acts chapter 4. It was conditional. It was not unconditional. and They were not regenerated in order to believe. Okay? Life application, and we're going to be done. Sin bears consequences for our life, our health, our peace, our family, our future. Of all sin, the rejection of Jesus is the one that, if not corrected before death, will lead to the punishment of every other sin and eternal condemnation. This message needs to be explained sometimes more than once, sometimes many, many times to those around us. There is pardon of all sin in Jesus Christ. There is the eternal punishment of all sin without Christ. And it is our choice. We must decide what we're going to do about it because Israel has the law. They know what it points to. And as long as they continue to dismiss it as they did over that guy's grave and say, well, this is just and they project that word, they will never come to a, a desire and a need for knowing Jesus Christ. But it is voluntary, and it's something that we have to face. And one of the one of the sayings that I really dislike the most, you may have heard it, I, every time I've heard it, it makes me cringe. Somebody said, and I don't remember who it was, somebody famous, he said, no person should be evangelized twice until all people are evangelized once. Boy, do I disagree with that. I think that is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard because some people need to hear it two and three and ten and a hundred times. You work with somebody, you don't just tell them about Jesus and be done with it. Now you can make a commitment because sometimes people won't hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about it. And so I, I will say, if you never want to hear about this again, I'll make a commitment to you about that. And then once I've done that, I'm free from my obligation. They may come back later and say, can you tell me more about that? That's fine. But I'm not going to break my word. But at least he got the gospel right some people will not let you talk to jesus uh, to them about jesus at all and if you give them that conditional offering then they will so it's up to you how you handle it but i think that is just a real weak way of looking at things by saying um that we should only evangelize a person once and then never again i just disagree with that let me see i had a uh, oh no i was had a prayer request and he died this week so we won't. It, no, it was somebody that uh, a guy that attends online, and what's that? He doesn't need any. He doesn't need any more. He is with his Lord. So praise the Lord. And I had it there, and I don't know why I didn't read it at the beginning, but uh, I just noticed it. And uh, uh, we can pray for his family as we close out. How's that, Heavenly Father? We do pray for Kenny. He is uh, one of your children. You uh, desired, or you uh, 
decided to call him home this week, and that is your decision. And I know that he is resting peacefully with you and that his family is missing him. And so we would pray for them. We would pray for those who knew him that were uh, attached to him. And uh, we would pray that uh, they would be comforted in their affliction. And for those that don't know Kenny, he was a person with Down syndrome. And he no longer has any afflictions at all. He will be whole, restored, and complete in Christ someday when he is raised to a body that he can't or even we can't even imagine. So we pray for them. And Lord, we thank you for this class. We certainly praise you for all you've done for us in our lives. And we thank you for this precious word. And we commit ourselves to you in the uh, days ahead until we can meet again together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me back this thing up here. And we're there. Okay, everybody have a wonderful uh, evening. Great couple days, and we'll hope that uh, you'll be here for Sunday morning service. And we love you so much. Bye-bye.